The topic of our conference this morning is the existence of God. I'm going to propose an argument for the existence of God. Let's try to put things in their uh, maybe theological perspective. In the scriptures, in the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 19, St. Paul says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them ever since the creation of the world. His invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. St. Paul is talking about the Gentiles, and he's saying that the Gentiles have a knowledge of the existence of God, even though they have not received the revelation that has been given to the Jews and Christians, and they don't have saving faith. And in saying so, he's echoing the book of wisdom, chapter 13, verse 1 and following, which says, for all men who are ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know him who exists, nor did they recognize the craftsman while paying heed to his works. Later on, In the book of wisdom, chapter 13, verse 5, it says, For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. There's two things being affirmed in in these passages. The first is that all human beings are capable of some kind of knowledge of the existence of God, even apart from divine revelation. And also, particularly in verse 5 of chapter 13 of the book of wisdom, when it says, from created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator, the word for corresponding there is analogia. So there's a kind of a knowledge by analogy. So the whole understanding of uh, the analogical predication of God, there's a basis for all of that, which we'll talk about later. There's a basis for that in the scriptures themselves. So we're in a very interesting situation or position when The scriptures themselves are telling us that we can know the existence of God apart from the scriptures. That's quite important. And so down through the ages, Christians have wanted to say, okay, my faith tells me that we can know the existence of God apart from the scriptures. Let's go try. Let's go try to work that out. Now, there's a general and vague and confused way in which all human beings have some kind of knowledge of God. Aquinas tells us that. But that general and confused knowledge of the existence of God can be elaborated through philosophical reflection into rigorous philosophical arguments. But Aquinas is very careful to point out that when it comes to this philosophically rigorous knowledge of the existence of God, where you have like a demonstrative proof or a demonstration in Aristotle's sense, that kind of knowledge of the existence of God is only for a few people after a long period of time and still with an admixture of error. In other words, what Aquinas is telling us is that philosophically rigorous knowledge of the existence of God is a high accomplishment of the human mind. So what we're going to be doing here this morning is not just any old exercise. We're going to be, in a way, ascending to the very heights of the possibilities of metaphysical thinking altogether and uh, offering an argument for the existence of God, we can be excused if we don't have everything down perfectly. We can be excused if we uh, are still in progress. 
in our understanding of things. Okay? All right. So Aquinas obviously is well known for his five ways for the existence of God, and there's been a tremendous amount of literature about those arguments. I'm going to focus on one argument that he doesn't give in the, in the Summa Theologiae, but gives in Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 2, Chapter 15, Paragraph 6, if you want to look it up and study it. This is the argument that Norman Kretzmann thought really actually worked. So it's a form of the argument from contingent being. So it's similar to the third way, but avoids a lot of the difficulties and problems of the third way, especially because the third way makes all sorts of reference to time, and this argument doesn't. So what I'm going to do is read you the text of Aquinas, um, and then we'll proceed to give a kind of commentary on it. Here's what Aquinas says. Again, everything that can be and not be has a cause. For considered in itself, it is indifferent to either, so that something else must exist which determines it to one. Since then, it is impossible to go on to infinity. There must exist a necessary being which is the cause of all things that can be and not be. Now, there is a kind of necessary being whose necessity is caused. But in this order of things also, progression to infinity is impossible. So that we must conclude to the existence of something which is, of itself, necessary being. There can be but one such being, as we proved in Book 1, and this being is God. Everything other than God, therefore, must be referred to him as the cause of its being. That's the passage from Aquinas, and he starts out by saying, everything that can be and not be has a cause. And down through the years of the Thomistic tradition, that kind of being has come to be called a contingent being. And what I want to do is take some moments to elaborate on the meaning of the term contingent in this context, because it doesn't necessarily mean what you're accustomed to using it it doesn't mean what you normally think it does, especially if you're accustomed to thinking in terms of modal logic. It's a description of being, first of all, not propositions. So it applies to things. What is a contingent being? Here's the nominal definition. A contingent being is something that exists, otherwise it wouldn't be a being. It exists, but does not have to exist. That's what we understand by the term contingent being something that exists but does not have to. There's no specification as to how long it exists, no specification that it began to exist in time, or anything like that. In fact, Aquinas at one point asked the question, could God have created a world that did not begin in time, a world that had always been here? He raises that question. So contingency doesn't necessarily mean beginning in time, okay? Now, as soon as you think of uh, the expression contingent being, understood this way, and you think about things around us, you realize that many of the things around us are contingent in the sense of the term. Trees are contingent. They exist, but they don't have to. They come and they go. They begin to exist. They cease to exist. Cats and dogs, animals, they begin to be and cease to be, so they don't have to be. And likewise, each one of us, you and I exist, but we don't 
have to exist. All of these are contingent beings, though we're not making the assertion that everything is contingent. We're just saying that when we look around empirically, we can discover all kinds of contingent beings, ourselves included, and maybe ourselves are the best example. That's how Edith Stein runs this argument. She starts with, I exist and I'm contingent, and she goes from there. But the important thing to realize, as soon as we ponder the notion of contingent being, something exists but it doesn't have to, the mind naturally, you could say spontaneously, asks, why? Why do these things exist when they don't have to? And it takes some uh, philosophical kind of gymnastics in order to get to a point where you, ask, where you say to yourself, well, that's a silly question. I never should have thought that question in the first place. No, the first spontaneous, natural kind of movement of the mind when we consider contingent being is to say, okay, these things exist. They don't have to. Why do they exist? So that's sort of where we can begin with the notion of contingent being, generally speaking. And the, the claim that what it is to be a contingent being is independent of whether something began to exist or how long it exists is quite important in Aquinas' overall project of proving the existence of God. Because he's quite well aware that there's two different ways you could go about trying to prove the existence of God or give an argument um, from contingent being. One way would go like this. Number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the world began to exist. Therefore, three, the world has a cause. A lot of you may recognize this as an argument that's often called the Kalam cosmological argument. It has been advanced by many people down through history, both Christians and Muslims. And the whole argument turns on two premises. It's got a nice simplicity and elegance about it. The first premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause, seems self-evident, a first principle. Maybe it's not a first principle, maybe there is an argument for it, but man, it really has the force of self-evidence about it. The notion of something just popping into existence out of nothing uh, seems absurd, prima facie. The second premise that the world began to exist, that's the big question. Did the world begin to exist? And Aquinas thinks it's philosophically unprovable whether the world began to exist or not. Both, it cannot be proven that it began to exist and it cannot be proven that it did not begin to exist. So Aquinas wants to back away from this argument and not use this argument. This is not his argument. In other words, his argument from contingent being does not presuppose or entail that the world began to exist. In fact, he's so conscious of wanting to distance himself from this argument that he says, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, book one, let's assume for the sake of argument the opposite thesis. Let's assume for the sake of argument that the world has always been here. We can still give an argument for the existence of God without referring to a beginning of the world or the, the claim that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Okay, Aquinas, you've got us now. Either the world began to exist or it did not. If it did begin to exist, we've got the Kalam argument for the existence of God. 
If it did not begin to exist, do we have another argument? We have Aquinas' argument. That's what's being presented in Summa Contra Gentile's book two. An argument for the existence of God from contingent being that does not presuppose that the world began to exist. How can this be? How could such an argument go? Aquinas has a distinction that's not too common in contemporary philosophy, but I want us to have it on the table before us. He distinguishes between causes of being and causes of becoming. The cause of being versus the cause of becoming. If you think of the parents of a rabbit as the cause of the coming to be of the rabbit, there's a cause of becoming. They give birth to the rabbit. But then there's things that are caused not to come to be, but just simply to be. If we think of a chandelier hanging in a particular place, you say, why is it here? Not how did it come to be here? I mean, the electrician hung it up there. That's the cause of becoming. But why is it here now? What's the cause of its being here, not the cause of its coming to be here? The answer would be something like the chain suspending it from the ceiling, okay? Or the ceiling itself holding it there in this place. That would be the cause of its being there, okay? If we ask, why are we on the earth? What's the cause of our being on the earth? The answer would be gravity. Okay. All right. So with that distinction in mind, Aquinas can say something like, I'm not going to give you an argument that there's a cause of the coming to be of the world. I'm going to give you an argument that there's a cause of the being of the world, where by world I understand the order of contingent beings. The world is the order of contingent beings. Is there a cause of the being of contingent beings? their very existence. So let's try to formulate the argument now in as simple a way as we can for our purposes. Here's how it would go. Premise number one, a contingent being exists. We're leaving the quantity unrestricted. Contingent beings exist or a contingent being exists. That's the first one. We can say that's either evident to the senses or if we're talking about ourselves, it's somehow internally evident. Okay, number two. Every contingent being receives its existence from another. Every contingent being receives its existence from another. Let's notice I didn't use the word cause there, I just said it receives its existence from another because I think that's what for Aquinas cause means in this context. Okay, or being in a, a cause is something that gives being an effect is something that receives its being or existence from another. Why well, think that's true? Well, on the one hand there's an initial self-evidence to it, an initial kind of force that the principle has. Again, as soon as we consider the notion of contingent being, something that exists but doesn't have to, we natu naturally or spontaneously ask, well, why? <clears throat> that goes to show that somehow this principle, number two, every contingent being receives its existence, is in the back of our minds. We've already got it, implicitly at least, 
It just needs to be brought out, brought to light, and explicitated for us. But still, Aquinas does not think it's, as it were, self-evident. He gives a very fast, we could call it mini-argument, for this principle in the passage that I read. Here's what he says. Everything that can be and not be, in other words, every contingent being, has a cause, okay? Why? He says, four, considered in itself, it is indifferent to either. It's indifferent to being, to existing, and to not existing. So something else must determine it to one. That is, something else must make it to be, okay? Because of its indifference. How do we think about this? If we think about contingent beings, each of them has an essence. Every contingent being has essence and existence. Okay? And the essence and existence in contingent beings are not the same. They're really distinct. That's one of Aquinas' fa famous philosophical or metaphysical points, we should say, the real distinction between essence and existence. So in every contingent being, what it is is not the same as that it is. There's a real distinction between what a rabbit is and that the rabbit is. There's a real distinction between what an oak tree is and that the oak tree is. And because of that real distinction, we can consider the essence of contingent beings. Just in, consider those essences. And those essences are, we can describe them in two ways. Aquinas says that they're indifferent, but we could also say the essence is open. It's open to being. It's open to not being. I call that an existentially open essence. An existentially open essence. It's open to, to existing. It's open not to existing. A cat can exist. The essence of cat can receive existence, and you can have the existence of a concrete cat. Or that existence can go away, and the cat can just simply cease to be. But there's nothing in the essence of cathood which accounts for its being or guarantees its being. Okay? Aquinas' word is different and stronger than open. He says it's indifferent. <coughs> indifferent. Contingent beings are indifferent to being and not being. That's a striking thing to observe that he says that because we tend to think of contingent beings as having a kind of internal propensity to keep being. And he says that they're indifferent to being and not being. Okay? Important. So if we were to give an argument, a quick argument, for this second premise that every contingent being receives its, its existence, here's how we could do it using a simple <clears throat> middle term kind of schema. Every contingent being has an existentially open essence. Or, as Aquinas might say, every contingent being is indifferent to being and not being. But whatever has an existentially open essence, or whatever is indifferent to being and not being, must receive its existence from another. That's Aquinas' quick argument in this passage of the Summa Contra Gentiles for the second premise that every contingent being receives its existence from another. Okay, that's the second premise. Let's go on to the third. <coughs> we can formulate it this way. It is impossible, it is impossible to proceed to infinity 
in a series of contingent beings, each of which receives its existence from another. I'll repeat that. It is impossible to proceed to infinity in a series of contingent beings, each of which receives its existence from another. The way that Aquinas thinks about it is that we have a contingent being and it receives its existence. Let's suppose we have a contingent being A. All right, if it's contingent, it receives its existence from another. Let's suppose there's another B giving it its existence, okay? Notice I put them vertically. The understanding is that this causality is happening simultaneously, okay? As Aristotle says, cause and effect are simultaneous in act. So we're not talking about historical chains of causes. We're talking about a giving of being that's taking place now. Now. Now we can talk about that whole um, topic of causation and simultaneous causation. It's an important topic. But this is the way we can set it up simply for the time being. Now B is either a contingent being or it's not. If it is a contingent being, then there needs to be another C that gives it being. If it's not a contingent being, then we've arrived at our conclusion. There exists a necessary being, a non-contingent being, that gives being to another thing. Okay? It's impossible to proceed to infinity in a series of things, each of which receives its very existence from another. How do we, uh, how do we give an argument, or I don't know about an argument, at least an illustration of that principle? Hopefully that has something of the force of self-evidence to it. If each thing is receiving its very existence, how can, it, how, how can you go back, as it were, infinitely with each thing receiving its own capacity to give existence to another, where everything is receiving its very existence. Let's give an analogy, and it can only be an analogy. And I don't want to get bogged down in questions of time, simultaneity, and time lags, because I'm trying to illustrate another point with this analogy. But if we think of a mirror reflecting light, you might ask yourself, where does the light in the mirror come from? Now, suppose the answer was, well, I have this other mirror over here, and it's reflecting light. And I'm using this mirror to shine light um, on this one. Okay, well, what about this mirror over here? Where's the light in this mirror coming from? Uh, I've got another mirror over here, and it's reflecting light. Okay, well, I've got, where's that light come from? I've got another mirror that's reflecting light. And I have another mirror that's reflecting light. Then I have another mirror that's reflecting light. You should, I hope, see that mirrors reflecting light are not the right kind of thing to tell you where the light comes from. They're not, what we need is something different than a mirror reflecting light. We need a source. Something that's not a mirror, but it's just original, originally given. Okay? That's how we can think of contingent beings. If each of them has an essence that's open to being and not being, each one of them is receiving its existence. It's like, in some way, a mirror receiving light. And positing an additional number of contingent beings over and over and over again doesn't 
answer the question because contingent being is the explanandum. It's what needs to be explained. So continuing to posit more and more and more of the explanandum isn't getting you an explanans, an, any kind of account of what's going on. Okay? So that's the third premise. It's impossible to proceed to infinity. In a series of contingent beings, each of which receives its existence from another. So the con first conclusion, therefore, there must be a necessary being. There must be a necessary being that gives existence to contingent beings, or at least to one of the contingent beings. There must be a necessary being that gives existence to contingent beings. How do we understand necessary being? A necessary being is a being that exists. I mean, that's the, that's the question at issue. We're giving an argument that it exists. It must exist if it exists at all. That means it cannot fail at being. And on Aquinas' understanding of it, in contingent beings, to be is not the very essence of the thing, but concerning the necessary being, to be is its very essence. What it is, is to exist. It's sheer being. Ipsum esse subsistence. It does not have being. We can say that contingent beings have being, and they have their being from the necessary being. But the necessary being doesn't have its being. It just is being, being itself, or sheer being. Okay, something like that. Now, how can we go on to show that this necessary being is something like the God of the Bible or the God that we worship. Well, we need an argument that there's one necessary being. Aquinas has a number of them, and time does not permit us to go into all the demonstrations for the unicity of a necessary being, but we could give a short argument that would be suitable, at least for our purposes. So another premise would be something like this. This is not Aquinas' argument, but it's one we could use. Number five, here's a rule. Do not multiply entities beyond necessity. One necessary being suffices to account for the existence of all contingent beings. We just posit the universal cause of all being in contingent things. That's one way we could go. And if we wanted to posit another one, we, we would be reasonable to ask, well, why do you want to posit a second one? if one suffices to account for all of them. But then, from that rule and the conclusion it follows, there's one necessary being that gives existence to all contingent beings. There's one necessary being that gives existence to all contingent beings. And the way we can think about it, and should, should think about it, if we want to understand Aquinas, it's something like this. You think of here's the world, where by the world I mean the order of contingent beings. So this is the world. There's time in the world. 
How much time? Aquinas is saying, let's assume for the sake of the argument that time is everlasting. Let's assume that for the sake of the argument. Still, everything in here, including time itself, is a contingent being because by definition it's the order of contingent beings. And we have a being, the necessary being, beyond time that somehow giving being to every one of the contingent beings at all times throughout. If at any point in time one of the contingent beings were to cease receiving its existence, it would simply cease to be. So we can think of this necessary being that gives being to all others, to all contingent beings, as a kind of, what, a fountain? An ontological fountain, okay? <laughs> In which all things, from which all things flow forth or from which all things receive their being. Now there's a term I haven't used, um, but Aquinas is quite happy to use it, participation. We may need that term later on in our discussions, but the way he thinks about participation is when you have a perfection that's uh, a, an original source that's unlimited and other things receive a likeness of that source in a limited or finite way and reflect it, reflect that source, that perfection, then you have a participation schema. So what we have going on here is contingent beings receive an, an active existence from being itself. Being itself is the source. The contingent beings receive an active existence from that source, and they're like that source. But they each receive their own limited, finite, active existence. And in that way, they're different from the source, seriously different from the source. About participation? Yes. In a participation schema, you have uh, the so a source that has, is a perfection in an unlimited or infinite way. Something receives that perfection in a finite and limited way and reflects it or is like it to some extent. So contingent God, if you think of the necessary being, which we'll call God in a moment for reasons that I'll give, um, as, this, as, the, as being itself, contingent beings receive an active existence from that source, which is limited and finite, and their active existence is like or reflects the source, but is a distinct act from it. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because readers of Aquinas get used to thinking about what participation is and that sort of definition, and it's not, not too common for people to really think in those terms. Okay, so we have the existence of a necessary being that we've posited just because of what we might call the, the metaphysical poverty of contingent beings. They're all, their essences are needy. They're, ontolo they're ontologically needy. They do not account for their own existence. They're not self-sufficient. They're open. They're indifferent. So we proceed to positing a necessary being which gives them their being and in which they participate. Okay, great. So we have like a metaphysical alpha. We could call that. It's an alpha. It's like a necessary being and everything else receives its being from that. But 
there's a number of objections that can be raised. What do we call this? Here's one objection. It goes something like this. It's not really even an objection. It's just an assertion. That's not God. That's not the God. Yeah, that, that's just not what human beings mean by God when they use the term. Aquinas understands this objection. At a certain point, he says, the way that an existential argument goes, I mean, an argument on sit goes, is that you first need a, dis a description of something that you want to prove its existence. You need a description based on the, the, the meaning of the word, the nominal definition of the word. So what would be a nominal definition of the word God? For that, we can go to a dictionary. That's where nominal definitions may be found. So the Oxford English Dictionary says this, God, noun. Whether it's a noun or not is an a interesting question we could ask. Um, there's kind of some metaphysical presuppositions there, but that's okay. Um, being is a verb for Aquinas. So. Uh, it says, the one supreme being, capital B, the creator and ruler of the universe. What? Well, our necessary being really matches that. It's being, capital B, it's sheer being, and it's creator. In fact, what this argument does is it sets Aquinas up to give an account of what the word creation means. What does it consist, what does being a creator consist of? To create is to give existence. That's Aquinas' short answer to the question. What is it to be, to create, to give essay? So this necessary being uh, the existence of which we've given an argument for here this morning matches the dictionary definition of God. And so we're justified in saying it's God in the dictionary sense of the term. That's one way you can go. Someone could come back, though, and say, look, this is not the personal God of the Bible. I mean, this could be like a, a, you know, some kind of being that just necessarily emanates being and, and yeah, just things just flow forth from it in a kind of impersonal way. How do we answer that kind of assertion? It's not the personal God of the Bible. Here's one way we could go. You could say, all right, let's talk about the God of the Bible for a moment. The God of the Bible identifies himself in the Bible with this necessary being. Why do we say that? We can look at some biblical passages. One of the most important of them, for our purposes, is the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14. This is where Moses is at the burning bush, or is experiencing the burning bush, and he says to this voice, or this God coming from the bush, what is your name? And the answer that's given is, I am he who is, I am. I am he who is, I am. Now, what does that mean? Okay? And one answer that we can give is we can say, God is saying, I'm a necessary being whose very essence is to be. <laughs> and that allows us to see that what Aquinas is doing here in this argument is not only giving us a nice metaphysical argument, 
He's using metaphysics and even illustrating how metaphysics can be used to interpret scripture. So he's using philosophical reason to unpack the scriptures themselves. A a passage that would otherwise remain cryptic, I am he who is I am, has some kind of, receives some kind of interpretation or clarification through the metaphysical reasoning. Okay, now a lot of biblical scholars don't like this, contemporary ones. Say, now you, you haven't, Aquinas is using old texts and he's importing Greek metaphysics. And that if you look at the Hebrew itself, it has many different meanings and it means something very, very different and all sorts of things. The, the difficulty with those kinds of objections is that Aquinas is not limited to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. So even if we were to grant all the objections regarding that passage, there's still a lot of other passages he has where we could say the God of the Bible identifies himself with this necessary being. What kinds of other passages? Wisdom chapter 1, verse 14. He created all things so that they might exist. That sounds a lot like what we're talking about. He created all things so that they might exist. There's another passage Aquinas could go to, or you and I could go to, to say, see, the God of the Bible is identifying himself with this necessary being, which gives being to all contingent beings. But we're not limited to that one. There's also Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and for him all things are. What does that mean? That would also sound quite cryptic if we didn't have this metaphysics to explain it. Okay? Again, Aquinas can say, the God of the Bible is identifying himself with the necessary being of metaphysical reasoning, and the metaphysical reasoning, in turn, illuminates the passage from the Bible. And lastly, Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, meaning the source and the goal of all things. There's another passage where you could say God is identifying himself with this being, with this, with this metaphysical fountain. He's just using a symbolic term, the, the Alpha, okay, to do so. So we can say, in response to the objection that this is not the personal God of the Bible, uh, it is the personal God of the Bible because when we look at the Bible and see what God, how he describes himself, identifies himself, or reveals himself, he reveals himself as a necessary being from which all being flows, in which all things have their being. The Alpha and the Omega and he created all things so that they might exist. That's one way we can answer the objection, it's not the personal God of the Bible. 